Thanks, Rod. You know, I have to say, I've got to be careful of these poinsettias up here, especially now, now that they voted marijuana in it. I don't want to fall into the pot. I don't want to fall into the pot up here. Like. Thanks, Rod. I do have to say that, uh, seriously, that Marty and I, first of all, love this church and are so honored um, to sit under the ministry of my son-in-law, Rod, and uh, whatever the biblical equivalency of pride is, that's how we feel about being related to Rod and Libby. In fact, every place I go in the world, people say, I don't know you, but aren't you related to Rod Van Selkema? <laughs> Delighted to be here. So when our kids were little, like, think of like a one-and-a-half-year-old sitting in a high chair, uh, we would sometimes go up to them and say, how big are you? Do I have a witness on this? And their eyes would just brighten up, and they would go, so big, right? <laughs> so that was a fun game we played. By the way, how about if, like, if I say, hey, how big are you? Like, so big, good for you. So that's a great game to play with your kids. But I came all the way from Cornerstone University to tell you that's not a good game to play with God. Especially if the so big is all about you. And this morning as we study the book of Numbers and continue the study, uh, we're going to see what an epic failure it was for our hero Moses to play so big with God. Open your Bibles with me to Numbers chapter 20. So as you're opening your Bibles, let me give you a little context of where Moses is in his leadership journey. Uh, first of all, uh, we learned last week in... Uh, what's Martin's first name, Rod? Yeah, thank you. Neil Martin's like, oh my goodness, brilliant message last week, which totally intimidates me to be here today, like, <laughs> that, the, that the priests had risen up against Moses and were trying to do this takeover, and uh, so Moses like, oh, what am I going to do about this? And then we get to this passage, and his sister has just passed away. And you would think the children of Israel, admiring his leadership, would have come around him to give him comfort and support him and bring dinners at night and all those good things, except they're like totally out on Moses. They're grumbling and complaining. Why did you bring us out here? There's no water in this land. We're thirsty, blah, 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 blah. I think I can understand how Moses feels. I've, in my life... The more I got to know people, the more I thought life would be a cakewalk without them. <laughs> or as the philosopher once said, the more I get to know people, the more I love my dog, right? So, so that's kind of the context we find Moses in, and you'll see that he's really ticked with these people, and God gives him a huge assignment. So all of that to give you time to find the text. And as you know, here we stand in honor to the word of God. So stand with me, follow along in your scripture as I read. 
And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam, who was Moses' sister, died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why, why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. So then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of this grumbling assembly to the entrance of the tent of the meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them, give them drink to the congregation and to their cattle. And Moses took the staff before the Lord as he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Here now, you rebels. So you know he's ticked, right? He's a little name-calling going on here. Here now, you rebels. Shall we bring you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank in their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. You're not going into the promised land. These are the waters of Meribah where the people of the Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So this is one of these texts I'm going like, really? Like, I'm a little embarrassed about God at this moment. Like, Moses has one bad day, and you don't let him go into the promised land? I mean, really? So obviously, God being a just God and a good and loving God, it's not just that Moses had one bad day. There must be something deeper going on here. Well, God had a plan. God had a plan that in the midst of Israel's greatest need, he would show himself strong. He would bring glory to his name. By the way, I just want to say that it's in our hours of greatest need that God delights in showing his glory and showing himself strong. And this was the plan, that Moses would gather the assembly together and he'd grab his rod. The rod, as you know, was what he had carried throughout even through Egypt, it was his power and it was his authority. Remember, he threw it down, turned into a snake, confounded the magicians in Egypt. This was, this was his power. This was his authority. And God said, get your rod, get the assembly together, go to this rock face and speak to it. Just talk to the rock. And from that rock, I will show my glory the love and power of my people to all who see and hear about this. That was the plan. 
But as we read in the text, something went dreadfully wrong. Moses didn't do the plan. And as a result of that, does not get the privilege of going into the promised land. So let's see if we can dissect this. So uh, when you get to verse 12 in your text, God explains what Moses did wrong. He says, because you did not believe in me. So that's number one. And I can understand uh, this challenge to Moses. God said, speak to the rock. Moses had to believe that God would work through speaking to the rock, right, in order to follow through. But if I'm Moses, <laughs> first of all, all these people already are totally out on me. And I'm going to go up to this rock face and put yourself in his place. And uh, especially since before he was able, remember the earlier ex experience, he was able to take his authority and his power of the rod and strike the rock. That's what God told him. It's time to speak to the rock. I'm going like, Moses is going to be standing there like, good morning, rock. You know, everybody's watching. And really? I'm just going to speak to the rock and something's going to happen. I wonder if any of us have ever been intimidated by the circumstance so that we really don't believe in God and that God will take us through and perform what he's called us to do. I think so. Sometimes God calls us to do hard and awkward things. He calls us to forgive our enemies. Some of you have experienced deep offense in your life. And how hard that would be. Especially when it would make you look as Moses maybe feared. He looked in the face of this impending call of God on his life. It makes you look like you're weak. Not able to fight back makes you look vulnerable. Like, if I forgive them, maybe they'll do it again to me, or it makes you fear that justice will never be done. And it's hard to follow through. And so maybe it's easy for you to go back to what's comfortable, your old ways. That's exactly what Moses did here. He said, I'm not sure I just want to talk to this rock. I have real confidence in my authority in this rod and the power that's been in the rod. I think I'll do it my way. I wonder if it ever crossed our fallen little brains that, don't take that personally, by the way, <laughs> that when you forgive somebody, number one, you glorify the forgiveness of God through your life. That you are forgiving them because God is a forgiving God. You'd like to show the world what your God is like. You would like your world to know that you forgive them because you have been forgiven by the Almighty God. I wonder if it ever crossed our mind that forgiving our enemies, though we feel weak and vulnerable, out of control, and that justice may never be done, that we forgive them. And if they say, why would you do this? The wonderful opportunity, I do this because I am forgiven of God and I serve a forgiving God and I will forgive as well. That's wonder. Sometimes God calls us to do difficult things with our finances. I remember 
way back early on in our lives when our kids were just small, somebody challenged us biblically to get our finances in order. And that would mean that we would work to get out of debt and, number one, start giving to the Lord to honor his name and worship through our money. I have to tell you, at that time in our lives, we had way too much month left at the end of the money. Do I have a witness on that? <laughs> so it was, like, it was like a hard obedience, like, really? But we decided we should follow the Lord in spite of the fear of not having enough of what God would do. And I just have to tell you, I wish I could have had time to explain the many ways in which God provided for us and showed himself strong in our family. Uh, one of the ways was we had friends that lived in Cleveland, Ohio, and they felt uh, no financial pain. Have you ever seen people like that? Like, no financial pain. So they dressed their little girl in these, like, designer dresses and outfits, and, and then when the little girl outgrew them, we had the opportunity to receive a package from them because they'd pack them all up and send them to us. And we got to dress little Libby up in all these designer clothes. And guess what? We got to tell Libby that these came from God, that this is the kind of God we serve. We were able to glorify his name in our family. But Moses didn't believe God and decided to do it his way. But the most important thing in the text that tells us about what was going on with Moses is found in verse 12. In addition to what we just saw. He says, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy before the eyes of the people. So there was something going on here about the holiness of God. Now I just want to stop and make sure we're thinking correctly about the holiness of God. When we think about holiness, my guess is most of us think about purity. And that, that is a part of it. Uh, that God is pure and that when we are holy, we live pure lives. It's so much bigger than that. The Hebrew word holy literally means separate, distinct, different. So when we hear about the holiness of God, we have to think, that he is separate from anything on this planet. He is distinctly different from any power or anyone on this planet. He alone is the only true God. Nobody's in second place. There's no competition. He alone. And then you put in it, into that all of his intrinsic qualities, that his justice is like unrivaled, like no, his mercy and his grace and, and his righteousness and all that he is is totally separate, that there is no one like our God. And that's what his holiness is. And in this text, if you read the fullness of it, obviously God wants to show the children of Israel that there is no God except for him. Like, no one is as powerful to meet needs like his God. It is his holiness. And so you might be asking, well, what does that have to do with his glory? Well, I thought you would never ask. Thank you for asking that. John Piper helps us with that, scholar, pastor, Bible teacher. He writes this. When Isaiah 6.3, the angelic beings cry out, Holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. It doesn't say that the whole earth is full of his holiness. Interesting. 
He goes on to say, the reason is that holiness is conceived of intrinsic worth, as we've just said. His beauty, his purity, the value and excellence of God, totally separate from anyone or anything else on earth. His then this is the point, his glory is what his holiness looks like when it goes public. So when the holiness of God is observable, that's his glory. When it fills the earth and is made visible for humans to see. So when God in this text says, Moses, you failed to uphold my holiness, he's really saying is you failed to show the world my glory, that I am the all-powerful God for all people to see. So what's happening here is probably most pointedly seen earlier in the text when Moses stands before this, probably the face of a cliff, and strikes it. It's not it's interesting. People, I've heard people always say, the reason that Moses is not going into the promised land is because he was angry and he struck the rock. I really don't see that in this text. In fact, there's something in this text that tells us exactly why. Go back with me to verse 8. He says, tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. And now down to verse 10. Hear now, you rebels. Shall God bring water for... Whoa. What does your text say? Shall what? Shall we, Aaron and myself, shall we bring you water from this rock? Interesting, Psalm 106, 33 that is a reciting of this historical event, when it gets to this point, says that the problem with Moses was that Moses spoke ill-advisedly with his lips. Ancient or older versions say that Moses sinned with his lips. So here's a Sunday morning quiz. Who was bringing water from the rock? Absolutely. What did Moses say? I'm bringing water from the rock. This is Moses' so big moment. And God has a so big response. Because Moses has aborted the very intended purpose of this moment. That God would be glorified in the earth before the eyes of Israel. So why would God be so concerned about that? First of all, I think we need to know that God is jealous of his glory. In Isaiah, we read that, that God shares his glory with no one. And there's a couple of biblical examples that I think are highly instructive. For instance, Nebuchadnezzar, emperor of Babylon, builds a tall, huge idol to himself and calls himself God. And God says to Nebuchadnezzar, you like grass? And as a judgment for competing with God's glory, for seven years he's sent out into the wilderness, kind of goes crazy in his head, like an animal eats grass for seven years. Maybe as an application point, I should say to you, you like grass? And then it's Herod in the book of Acts who claims himself to be God and tells people to worship him, and God strikes him dead. And interestingly enough, the text says, and his body was eaten by worms. So, may I think about, like, 
Why is he so consumed with his glory? And he's not going to share it with anybody. It's kind of like, maybe give the Lord a bad rap here, like, why are you always so self-centered? Why is it always about you? Why do you always want your glory to be seen? Well, it's a very important answer to that. It's that God is jealous to show our watching world what kind of a God he is. That he is a God of all power, of love, and compassion. How will the world know what our God is like? if his glory is not made manifest in our world. And this is going to become increasingly important now as the children of Israel go into the land of Canaan. They're going into a land where the Canaanites worship gods of wood and stone, and though, even though they ultimately sacrifice their children to these gods to get their gods to respond, they don't hear, they don't talk back, they don't help. They just torment the people with ridiculous and now God will be entering the, the land of Canaan. And the children of Israel have the opportunity to show all of Canaan that their God is a God like no other gods. Because when God's glory is revealed, it draws people to him. He's jealous for relationships. He wants the Canaanites to know that he is a God worthy to be worshipped and to be praised. The glory of God's a big thing. It's not self-consumed. He desires that the world know what kind of a God he is. Which brings me to the problem. I think, of, interestingly enough, if you think about the glory of God in Canaan, uh, you have the Jericho event is about to come up. And by the way, it is interesting, isn't it, that Rahab tells the spies, we have heard about your God, that he parted the sea that he has defeated enemies far greater than your armies. So the glory of God had already come. She said, all of us in Jericho are literally trembling with the thought that your God, who is greater than any of our gods, might be coming to our land. That's the whole pattern, right, of him demonstrating his glory. And so the Jericho event's coming up. Now Moses has demonstrated that at times he's very willing to take the glory to himself. First thing in, in Canaan, all of Canaan needs to hear what happened at Jericho. And it can't be about Moses. It has to be about God. So I don't know if you've been listening or not. I know how I listen to sermons. I'm in, I'm out. I'm in, I'm out. I'm in, I'm out. So if you've been out, you have to come in right now. And if you don't come in, I'm going to start from the beginning again. <laughs> What's going on here, what makes this so serious, is that God can't trust Moses to steward his glory into the land of Canaan. It's huge. Which is a sobering thought. Because I, I assume you're aware of the fact that God has assigned you to live to bring glory to him. Did you know that? So it's just not Moses. It's like you and it's me. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, What? What? Know ye not that you were bought with a the price, therefore 
I can't carry this ball by myself. Come on, you got to help me here. Therefore, glorify God in your body. It's our assignment to live, to bring glory to God. And what a sobering thought to think how seriously God takes that, wondering, can he trust me to steward his glory through my own life? And I have to say, it's a very high privilege. God's assigned his glory, as far as the Bible goes, to only four entities. Number one, creation. Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. <laughs> Did you ever go out on a cloudless night? Well, probably not in Grand Rapids, but... <laughs> and look at the stars, the depth of the universe. Can you get your head around that? I always think, they say it just keeps going forever. That can't be, right? has to stop somewhere, I think, like an eggshell around the universe. But then I think, well, there's got to be something on the other side of that, too. And that there are literally tens of thousands of galaxies like ours. The mystery of the black holes. That our sun, from literally light years away, warms our planet. And that if it got just another little bit closer, we'd all fry. If it got a little bit farther away, we'd all freeze to death. We're like, and you think, wow, what kind of a God do we have that he would speak and bring all this to bear? Think of the miracle of your own body. Think of eyesight, how that invisible rays come between you and me, and it goes through these little miraculous things in my head flips upside down through a nerve pattern, goes back to my brain. There's an HD screen in my brain, full color, and I can see you. Troubling thought that you could see me. And, I mean, do I have to belabor this? That creation declares what kind of a God we have. Wow. Also, Scripture tells us in Isaiah, the prophet, God speaks to the prophet, and he says, Israel, my glory. So the whole nation of Israel was assigned to bring glory to God. The parting of the Red Sea brought glory to God. Wow, what kind of a God they have. The defeat of, as we've said, the defeat of the armies that were much stronger. Wow, what kind of a God Israel has. Israel was to be an instrument to show a watching world what kind of God we serve. And then there's Christ. John 1.14 says, John, who hung out with him, says, I beheld his glory. But it was the glory of the Father through him. And so Christ was assigned to be an instrument of his glory. And then there's us. We too have been assigned for this. I think that's pretty classy company, personally. Like, what a privilege. Creation, Israel, our Lord and Savior Christ, and us assigned for his glory. Which makes me wonder, why are we so bent, so driven to live for our own glory? Is there anybody here that has felt that demon in their heart to be recognized, to be praised, to be affirmed for themselves, to, to, to be so big in your world? When in reality, at the end of the day, we're all broken by the fall. I think you should be surprised 
that God ever does anything good for you or anything good through you. If we have a real understanding of our brokenness and the depth of our brokenness, reminds me of little Jack Horner. Anybody remember that fable? Little Jack Horner sat in a corner eating his Christmas pie, stuck in his thumb, pulled out a plum and said, hey, what a good boy am I. You know, I think about that. I'm going like, if you're such a good boy, what are you doing sitting in a corner? <laughs> I've never known a, you know, a good boy to be sent to the corner. And then all the pictures I saw when I would read that was he had a whole pie on his lap. And I've never known a mother to give a kid a whole pie. And the only conclusion is he stole that from the kitchen. And if you don't buy any of that exegesis of the fable, then, then I'm saying, like, what's he doing with his fingers in a pie, breaking every social moray of decent eating habits? And... But at the end of it, he says, hey, check me out. What a good boy am I. Did he ever stop to think that he didn't put the plums in the pie? How much more appropriate it would have been to say, hey, what a good mother have I. Look what she put in the plum, in the pie. And I just think we tend to operate a lot like a little Jack Horner. That out of our brokenness, we play this so big game in our world. So obviously, this text with what we've just seen in Moses' life and why God didn't permit him to go in, calls us to do a flip on our behavior and to show our world how big God is. So let me give you three suggestions. Number one, that you live to glorify God in what you say. Every time God does something good for you, or God does something good through you, it's an opportunity to bring glory to God. To tell the world why he has done something good for you, or done something good through you. Some of us in this room are highly successful. You feel no financial pain. You live in the right zip codes. You drive the right kind of cars. You live in the right kind of houses. And it's a real temptation to be so big about yourself, about those things. And I wonder if perhaps we shouldn't remember at some point that we wouldn't be successful at all unless God had benefited our lives. God hadn't given you the gifts, the opportunities, the team in your company, put you in this place where the economy is thriving. And I wonder when people admire your success, if you're willing to tell them that it's really not all about you, but to tell them how God has blessed your life and what you say. You have a friend who's deathly ill for a long period of time. So, you, without fail, you're there with them all the time. You're helping with the family. You're bringing them food. You're, you're doing whatever is necessary week after week, month after month. And somebody goes to you and says, wow, you're a really good person. I wonder if you ever thought that you might tell them 
that you're doing this because you'd like to show your friend the love of Jesus Christ, and it really has nothing to do about you. I just wonder. Then there are times um, when life does go south on us. Think of Job. And you have the opportunity to turn your face against God and go bitter on life's circumstances or to keep your chin high and say with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And to prove to your world by your attitude that's not bitter, that's not angry at God, not angry at the circumstances, to prove to your world that your God is worthy to be worshipped and praised regardless of what happens in your life and bring glory to him. Every once in a while, I wish it were more often, people say, hey, that was a really good sermon. And I say, of course. (laughs) What did you expect? (laughs) I really don't say that. Because here's what I know. That if God had not given me the gifts he's given me, the opportunities for education that he's given to me, the home I grew up in where my dad was a pastor and was a mentor to my life, if God had not done, given me the power of his word that I preach and the work of the Holy Spirit moving through the word until I affect It's kind of fascinating. Every once in a while, someone said, you know what? When you said this this morning, it's just what I needed. And so I pressed the, the replay button. I'm going, I don't think I said that. <laughs> I'm sure I didn't say that. So I say, I didn't say that. Scratch the blessing. <laughs> now what I do what I do know is that when the word of God is spoken the Holy Spirit has a way of taking it molding it making it just for personal application to someone buddy and taking it to meet the need of their heart how can I take credit for that how can I not steward the glory of God in that So it's in what you say, I, and it's a challenge. I, I love to tell people, wow, well, thank you, but I just have to say I'm thankful for the gifts that God enables me to preach, and you know how much he loves you. I had no clue what was going on in your life, and today God just loves you so much he had this just for you because he loves you, and just somehow get the, get the spotlight off of me and put it back on God. In seminary, uh, friend of mine worked at a bank, a fellow classmate of mine worked at a bank. And so he was in his kiosk one day, and uh, our Hebrew professor, Dr. Bruce Walkie, came into the bank and went to the teller right next to him so he could hear all the conversation. I don't think Dr. Walkie knew he was there, but uh, so he did a financial exchange with the teller, turned around, took a few steps away, counted his money. <laughs> And turned right around, came back to the teller and said, ma'am, you gave me too much money. And she counted the money. And then she said, wow, you're an honest man. And Dr. Walkie, this dignified Hebrew professor, he said to her, well, actually, it's not that I'm an honest man. It's that Christ has changed my life. 
put the spotlight back on God. God be the glory. But maybe you're thinking right now, I'm not that clever. I mean, I don't know what to say. <laughs> See, you were thinking that, weren't you? Like, like, like I, the, the moment's like too wrenching. Like, I think I should say something right now. I just want you to know, I, can, I, I know the feeling. Back when I served at Moody Bible Institute, one morning I'm out running early in the morning, and Marty says, hey, bring some Starbucks, Starbucks back. So I got done with my run, and about a block and a half from our house was this Starbucks place. 6 a.m., they had just opened. And I walked in, and there was only one guy in front of me, and he was just, like, actually yelling at the poor clerk, this kid's back, and he's saying, like, what do you mean you don't have change for my, I want this New York Times, I've got a $50 bill. What do you mean you don't have change? You should start, and so I thought, you know, I'm pretty wealthy, I could buy his paper for him. <laughs> Which is the measure of my wealth, actually, that I could buy the paper for him. <laughs> so I said to him, I said, hey, 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 I'll buy your paper. I said to the clerk, put his paper on my bill. The guy goes, oh, really? No, okay, yep, don't worry about it, I'll buy your paper for you. So he turns around and walks out with his Starbucks and his paper in his hand, and he turns and says to me, all that I have is yours. Uh, which obviously didn't include the $50 bill. <laughs> so he just kept walking. <laughs> and then it was my turn. And the, little, the kid, the barista, said to me, Mister, it was really a nice thing that you did. This world would be a lot better place if there were more people like you. The moment. <laughs> and... I defaulted. I just made some self-deprecating remark and got my two Starbucks. And I'm walking out. What could I have said? Like, ah. Oh. And I got about a half a block away and said, this is what I would, I, I know what I should have said. I should have said. Well, actually, this world wouldn't be a better place if there were more people like me, but it would be a lot better place if there were more people like Jesus because he taught me how to do this. So I turned around. I'm going to go back and tell him that. And I walked in. There's like eight people in line. And I said, they're not going to appreciate me butting in line and making a religious speech right now. So, oh. And then I remembered I was wearing a cap that said Moody Bible Institute. And I thought, wow, maybe he read the cap. In fact, I prayed all the way home. God, help him to have read the cap. <laughs> Seriously. To know that somehow Bible people do this kind of thing. Uh, so there will be times when, when you just don't know exactly what to say. But the good thing about that is that half a block away, I got my head straight. So it's not just what you say, it's what you think. Because halfway down the block, I thought, it's not about me. This world would not be a better place. It would be better for, if we were like Jesus, it would be better. And I think that's the, half the, is that half the battle or what? Do we get our heads in a game? And even if you don't know what to say, what are you thinking right now? Are you thinking thoughts that glorify God? 
And the more you think of that, the more you get these intellectual habits moving in your head, you might just know what to say the next time. So it's what you say, it's how you think, and it's what you do. I like Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus Christ says in verse 16, "The let your light so shine that people may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So glorifying God is a lot of how you live distinctly, differently. You kind of live a holy life different than all the world around you. What I would what be jealous for is if all of us at Crossroads who work out in the marketplace, who so work in our place that we're not grumbling at the water cooler, that we're not cheating our boss like others, that we're not trying to sneak out early, so that our bosses say this, I don't get Christians, but this office is a lot better place because they work here. That they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The people in your neighborhood who are probably pagans who, because of all the stuff we hear today, probably have some pretty negative thoughts about people like us who believe in Christ and who believe in Christmas and aren't afraid to say Merry Christmas. That because of what kind of a neighbor you are, how you were the first one at their house with a meal when the wife was in, in the hospital with serious cancer, when you were the one helping them and whenever a need arose, and your neighbors would say, I don't get these Christians, but our neighborhood is sure a better place because they live here. It's in what we do. It's in what we say. To bring him the glory, it's how we think. To bring him the glory, and it's how we live. To bring him the glory. And I'm wondering, can God trust you to steward his glory in your world? As you know, the Masters Golf Tournament is pretty huge. It's, it is every pro golfer's dream. The ultimate of their dream is to win the green jacket. I'll never forget the Sunday, the Easter Sunday, that I was sitting on my couch watching the end of the Masters, and Bernard Longer is coming up the 18th fairway, sinks the putt, wins the Masters. They put the green jacket on him, and the TV announcer comes up to interview him. And he says to Bernard Langer, he says, Hey, I bet this is the greatest day in your life. To which Langer said, It's the greatest day in my golf career. But I have to tell you that it doesn't compare with the fact that 2,000 years ago today, my Lord and Savior rose from the dead to give me everlasting life. I was on the floor. Seriously. And Bernard Langer just took the spotlight off of himself and shined it on the glory of his Lord. Millions of people watching heard of the glory of a risen Lord to give us everlasting life. It's my hero. I want to be like that. And I want people to look at my life and hear what I say and how I live and say, to God be the glory, great things he has done. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we just um, thank you for this reminder of your privileged call in our lives to steward your glory to a watching world. Forgive us for how taken we are with playing so big about ourselves. 
when your bigness is such a wonderful thing for everyone to see. So as we think about what your word has taught us today, may you transform our lives. May we enjoy being liberated from the endless chase of our own glory to the joy of living for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.